The passage for today is from Matthew 27, verses 45 to 50. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This afternoon we gather on Good Friday, as Daniel said, to um, focus our minds and focus our attention on Christ on the cross. Um, Each year we meet and we discuss one of the sayings of Jesus while he's on the cross. We have recorded in the gospel seven different things that he said. Today we'll be looking at the fourth saying of the cross, which is, as was just read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In these words, we learn a lot about the suffering that Jesus went through, and we learn who Jesus was even through these words. In this, we see three things that we'll point to. First, uh, the suffering of Jesus. Second, the trust that Jesus has. And finally, we'll look uh, briefly at the reward that Jesus has earned. Um, What's obvious to anyone who knows the story of Jesus on the cross Um, or anybody who's seen the movie The Passion of Christ, is the physical suffering that Jesus went through was extreme. Um, He was, as Daniel said, beaten, he was spit on, he was mocked, he was uh, struck with whips, and finally he was crucified and hung on a cross to die. So we see that there's a physical element to his suffering. Um, As Clint spoke to last night, we also saw a social element that he was cut off from his disciples, that even then they abandon him in his greatest hour of need, that Peter denies him, that the social element of suffering would have been there as well. Um, but tonight we're gonna, or today we're going to focus um, specifically on the spiritual suffering that Jesus faces. Um, those other elements by certain um, are severe and would have been hard for Jesus to handle were he any normal man But it's the spiritual suffering that he faces that causes him to cry out to God. Starting in verse 45 of the text, we see that Jesus said, or that Matthew records, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So in the first century or this time period, the day would have started at 6 a.m. So sixth hour would have been noon. It's the middle of the day, and there is this significant darkness. It says, There was darkness over all the land. Biblically speaking, there's a lot of significance to the nature of darkness. There's not, uh, in this text, an idea of a cloud rolling in and covering the sun. There's not the idea of a lunar or a solar eclipse. Um, This is a significant element of the judgment of God in this moment. What we see in Luke 1 is that Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist, prophesies concerning the coming Messiah. And he says these words, The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. Jesus is is this Messiah. He's come to bring those in the dark into the light. We see again, Jesus himself clarifies this message in John chapter 8, where he says, I am 
and the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And finally, and I think most encouragingly for uh, my fellow Christians, Revelation 22 tells us that there is a day to come when we will no longer need light of lamp or sun, for the Lord our God will be our light. God's salvation from the Old Testament to the New is always linked to this theme of light. God is a God of light. But Jesus hanging on the cross experiences a supernatural darkness that covers all the land or all the earth. And just as what we see is that God's presence is associated with light, we see that God's judgment is associated with darkness. So most of us are probably familiar with the plagues in Egypt, the ninth plague that God struck Pharaoh and the Egyptians as they were uh, abusing his people was that of darkness. A significant darkness fell over the land of Egypt and they were unable to see in front of them um, this wasn't just a warning. The, the darkness wasn't necessarily a warning. It was part of God's judgment. The darkness is uh, a foreshadowing to judgment, but is also part of judgment. And what we see in Egypt, we will see here as well, which is the final plague that came on Egypt was that of the Passover, that the first son of every child in Egypt would be killed unless they spread the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. So Jesus is by no means confused as to what this darkness is bringing him to. He knows that after darkness will come the death of the Savior. And for that reason, he cries out to God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is aware the final phase of judgment is approaching. and He cries out to his God. We just sang these words from Isaiah 53 that surely he has borne our griefs, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So we, we see in, in, this, in our passage here that Jesus is forsaken by God, but what does that mean? Jesus is forsaken by the Father while on the cross, but what is he saying by saying that he's been forsaken? There's a lot of people who read this verse and they interpret it as an unloving father abusing his son. That it's a, a form of cosmic or, or divine child abuse that the son can't stop himself from being killed. And that, of course, would lead us to a picture of God as unloving and wicked. And a God, of course, that would be undeserving of our worship and of our trust. But is that what we see here? Is that the case? And, of course, I would argue that that is not what is happening, but to understand why, we have to look at the nature of God, the nature of God the Father and the nature of God the Son, how they have related to one another throughout biblical history and how that changes here on the cross. So starting back in Genesis 1-1, at the beginning of the Bible, we know that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all together and they are existing in fellowship before creation. We read in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And a few verses later in verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So the singular switches to the plural there that God is a plurality. There, is, there are three persons within the Godhead, but there's one God. And this God predates the creation, predates all things. In the opening of the Gospel of John, we get a little bit more clarity as uh, to how this relationship works. We read, in the beginning was the Word, 
And the word was with God, and the word was God. The Greek word that there means, we translate as with, can carry this emphasis of to or toward. As one pastor puts it, the, the word, who is Jesus, was with God, turned toward him in face-to-face fellowship. And we also have to think about what type of fellowship. They're clearly close, but what, what was the relationship they had to one another? John 17, 24 tells us, uh, Jesus is speaking to God and says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So before creation, before Genesis 1-1, there's this pre-existing relationship of love between the Father and the Son. Matthew eleven twenty seven adds to this image saying, no one knows the Father, no one knows the Son except the Father, no one knows the Father except the Son. This eternal fellowship that God had shares is, is one that we, we cannot comprehend. It's, it goes deeper than we can really even understand, and uh, certainly we don't have time to, to study in depth the, the many intricacies of their loving relationship. But we see on the cross that it seems that that changes. It, it seems that that relationship is altered on the cross. So when Jesus asks, why have you forsaken me? We're not to assume that he is asking as one who does not know the answer. For us, this is a little bit more complicated, but for Jesus, he knows exactly what he's saying. When he says that he's been forsaken, I don't think he's saying that he is no longer God. I think he's referring himself back to um, what happened last night in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed to let the cup pass from him. He knows the cup that he is preparing to drink is God's judgment against sin, the wrath of God poured out on sin. As a holy and perfect God, Habakkuk 1.13 teaches us that God cannot see evil. He's of purer eyes than to see evil. So Jesus is bearing the sins of his people, and as a result of that, the punishment that he is receiving, part of that punishment is he is unable to be in the eyes of his Father. And again, this, the nature of the separation isn't completely clear to us, But we know that it's a real experience of Jesus. Jesus truly says and believes and is forsaken on the cross. But again, this this does not mean that he's no longer God. But like a son who sins against his father, or like a father who sees his son sin against him, there's a breaking of fellowship. You're still that son's father. You're still that son to the father. But the fellowship that you had is broken. It's changed, and it's hurt. So when Jesus experiences this significant darkness, he knows that what's happening is God's judgment on sin is being poured out. Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So what Jesus does is he steps in our place and receives the punishment for sin that we have earned, and the result of that is Jesus is spiritually forsaken by God. So for um, the Christians who are here, I think it's easy for us to fly past the cross and look towards the reward that comes and look towards um, our eternity with God, which is a true and good thing to to think of, but we're always to be people of the cross. This is where our story begins, but we don't depart from it as we move through our Christian lives. 
If anything, the longer that we know Jesus and the more we know of what he has done, it should cause us to grow more and more under the cross, humbling ourselves before this work. The darkness that fell on Christ leads to our presence with God in his eternal light. That's for us. And if you're here and you might not be a Christian or you're questioning the faith, have you considered this element that Jesus didn't die for himself? He died for you. He died for us. He took the punishment for our sins and he satisfied God on our behalf. Right now, there's um, likely guilt or shame that is associated with um, feeling your weight of sin, but forgiveness isn't earned, it's offered freely because it's been paid for by Christ. On the cross, Christ has made payment for your sin, and your only requirement is to trust in him for that forgiveness and to follow in um, that trust with seeing his payment as sufficient. But even as we see Christ's suffering and we, we are moved by the heart-wrenching words of his cry, we still see how he's trusting in God, even on the cross. Even as he's crying out that he's being forsaken, we see him trusting. So what would have been immediately understood by anybody who was Jewish or had um, history of understanding of the Old Testament would have known immediately that when he cries out in these words, he's quoting Psalm 22. So in verse 47, when it says some of the bystanders hear him and think that he's calling Elijah, I don't think they're doing that sincerely. I think this is continuing to mock him. They don't think he's saying, oh, Ellie, he's calling for Elijah. They're thinking he is continuing to claim to be the Messiah. Psalm 22 pointed forward to the Messiah to come, and they're continuing to mock him even as he is crying out to his God. And there are some who believe that, and possible, uh, that Jesus recited all of Psalm 22 while he was on the cross. There's evidence that would argue for that, but regardless of if he did quote the whole psalm or not, it's clear that he had the entirety of the psalm in mind. The, the implied meaning was that whole psalm is about him. Later in the psalm, David writes, um, he is, he's crying to God to feel God's presence. He writes, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David wrote those words not knowing how prophetic they would be. But Jesus here is mocked and despised, and even though they're still mocking that he trusts the Lord, he does trust the Lord still. Despite the visual language of the agony of Christ that we see in Psalm 22, there's also hope found in those verses. Verse 24 says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction or, or the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. While Christ's suffering is great, the confident trust that he has in his God is greater. Jesus asks why God has forsaken him, not knowing the answer, but knowing that it's a gift of love, that what he's doing on the cross is the will of God, as a gift of love. And that brings me to the, the final point of this, which is what gift could be worth dying in this way? What, what gift could be worth Christ giving up his life? Think about it. I mean, in 
as we read the story, there were opportunities for Jesus to turn away from this and to um, run and hide in the garden. He could have ran and hidden from the soldiers as they came to take him. When he was in front of Pilate, he could have just said, you know, I'm not the king. I'm not the king that you're looking for. And Pilate would have let him go. But Jesus knows there's a reward in front of him. And the answer to why the Christ was forsaken is that he was giving him a gift. I've already mentioned that he made payment for all of our sins on the cross, but he does receive something for that payment. On the cross, he is buying a bride for himself. In, in his work on the cross, in his crucifixion, in his death, he is purchasing us. He's purchasing a people for himself, a bride to be his eternally. So if you despair and if you feel uh, as though your mistakes are too great to be forgiven or you, you feel as though your, your mistakes make you unlovable by God, remember that our heavenly husband has bought your forgiveness. And clearly God honored this faithfulness because Jesus is not dead anymore. Well, he was forsaken. He is no longer forsaken. He now sits at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes on behalf of his people. He goes to the Father on our behalf. So when Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is so that we can be with him in paradise. His suffering on the cross has earned us a place in his presence. And this is why we can call this Friday good. It's despite the darkness of death that Christ faced, we now he is calling us to himself in light. So what we'll do now is we'll take uh, a, a minute or so to uh, just meditate on this work, on, on what Christ has done on behalf of his people. Um, so spend some time thinking of your own sin and your own darkness, how your heart can tend towards selfishness or anger, and just take some time to confess that to God. And then after you've confessed it, turn to thankfulness. Be grateful to God for what he's done. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So spend some time giving thanks to the Lord that we're not people who continue to live with guilt. And I'll close us in prayer after about a minute.